Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Information and communication technologies are as essential to modern society as air, food and water. Life today would be utterly unthinkable without information and communication technologies. While information and communication technologies has connected the society and removed the barriers of communication for individuals across nations' geographical boundaries, it has also helped private entities across nations to allow collaboration, reduce cost, improve processes, boost innovation, and increase productivity while at the same time making the public sector leaner, faster, and more citizen-friendly. But the most important contribution of the information and communication technology is perhaps the ability to access the real-time and authentic information without the filters of propaganda model, which individuals are able to use across nations to tackle the critical challenges of not only our time, but also of the coming future. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Baki Base. Baki is Chief Strategist, Center for, Center for Forensics, Information Technology and Security in United States. Welcome Baki, we are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Oh, thank you very much. So Becky, let's start with this. There are many who feel that there is a strong systematic tendency to underestimate the influence of information and communication technology as not only a powerful economic force, but also a tool for fundamental cultural and societal change. What are your thoughts about the, the impact I, of information I, I and communication technology and its power and potential the University of South Alabama? And I apologize for any ambiguities there. Okay, no so problem. It's also, it's, also, it's also abbreviated USA, which I drive, it drives me crazy, but. So this center is part of University of Alabama? Yes, it, no, it's part, actually it's a separate university. It's a regional university for this area of Alabama. Okay, I'm glad you so, did. So, sorry, sorry on that. I have, done the, I have done the high government thing. It's just been a while. No, that's quite all right. <laughs> and, and for whatever it's worth, I still advise the folks at national level, so. Okay. Okay, but well. I'm sorry, I didn't realize there was ambiguity there. Okay, so back into it. It's absolutely critical. Um, it's impossible, I think, to conceive of a modern world absent information technology. And I can remember, uh, it becomes a sign of how long one has been in the area. But um, I can remember in the earliest days of uh, working in computer security specifically, in which the primary worry was that no one would ever pay attention to us, um, that we would see problems in computing and it would always be um, very much a niche thing, only the things that, uh, that geeks or, or the uh, military worried about because nobody else messed with that stuff. Uh, and of course now we can't imagine, people I think can't imagine getting out of bed in the morning without having to deal with some aspect of IT. That is true. That is true. So uh, when it comes to the role of information and communication technology as an economic force, the direct and indirect contribution to economic growth made by digital information and communication technologies is largely due to the fact that each of the component, irrespective of software, hardware, information and communication technologies and services, 
are interconnected, interrelated, interdependent, and interdisciplinary areas. A great many products and services in cyberspace across industries and nations depend directly and indirect or indirectly on the digital information and communication technologies. So which particular digital information and communication technologies has enabled nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia to be the transformative force of change? I think that it, it is inherent there. Uh, part of the, the, first, the first effects I believe we saw is that it effectively warped time and space uh, such that on the one hand, it didn't matter whether the right person uh, speaking in a meeting was, uh, um, in, it was two continents away, perhaps speaking in, with the assistance of someone else, you know, who was translating for them. Clue was clue. Uh, the second piece of it is that these things are effectively give us an alternate universe um, in, in which we do very, very critical things. One of the attributes of that universe is that the time clock runs at a totally different speed. We do trades, for instance, in the financial world at, at oh heavens, millions of times the speed of uh, those that we did even 30 years ago. We do um, issues and frankly get blowback for them. We basically utter things within the, within the audible range of the network connection and have it in the press, you know, anymore in a matter of minutes. And so find ourselves, I think, kind of a, people in the political realm find themselves policing and shaping messages in very, very different ways, simply because of that particular warp in time and in space. Um, they are in a position where they can say something that in the past would have gone for weeks without notice, that now is blasted you know, to millions of people depending on the nature of the storm, and for which they may be getting irate phone calls and threats of war, you know, 15 minutes later. So it's, it's changed things, I think, across the board in really, really profound ways. Um, there's good news and there's bad news. If you're doing wonderful things, if you're doing things that have a truly transformative effect, your chances of getting out there are in some ways better. If you're doing things that perhaps are not as laudable or that are considered far more polarizing, you don't get a lot of room to maneuver around missteps. It's not a particularly forgiving environment. So it changes the very nature of the, of the uh, game. And one area I think that I and a lot of folks who are in cybersecurity uh, find uh, fascinating in an ongoing way is that we understand that the issues that we deal with are issues that profoundly affect the, the trust that people are willing to invest in what happens or their perception of what happens. And this ranges from the individual to the nation state. You're in a position where you hear things that appear to have happened but if, if it becomes a marker of how sophisticated you are in terms of to what degree you trust what you've just heard or just seen or just had reported to you. Yes. So it's a, it's a very, very profound effect. 
that that's very true and you are right there is information and then there is misinformation so there is there is uh, always that challenge yeah we have the access to all the real time news and real time events that are happening in the world but at the same time we don't know exactly which are the authentic which are the genuine news and what is just you know misinformation that is being spreaded so it 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 brings both good and bad like you said so uh, let's uh, talk about uh, some of these challenges that there is a growing fear that uh, technology brings nations critical risk of cyber attacks massive incidents of data fraud or theft along with massive digital information and misinformation so while technology has the potential to bring both good and bad is it fair to blame technology as a cause of critical global issues it effectively has a first order effect of simply enabling folks to communicate in ways that they could not or might not be inclined to otherwise so effectively, it makes non-optional what used to be a discretionary thing in terms of the, um, the level to which you're connected with what is happening, big quotes. Uh, you'll, you've always had folks who would, um, who would be information junkies, as it were, uh, who would be tuned into five different television stations, all news channels, and uh, uh, read you know, four major newspapers every day cover to cover as part of their shtick. Um, now it's not so optional uh, because of the availability of those channels, as well as those who would sell you the ability to buy filtered versions of what's happening on those channels, you know, for a price, um, to shape their message so that they can affect your behavior. It becomes a different, it becomes a different scene. You don't really have the option to tune out there. Yes. Um, also, you're in a position where there's a second and third order effect of this. Um, as I alluded to before, it changes the nature, the clock speed differential. Uh, the amount of time that goes between something happening geographically uh, uh, far from you and your ability to ignore it has simply gone away. It, it, the accessibility it ends up being less and less an option. So things that you might have been able to roll your eyes and say, I don't deal with that geographically, or simply, particularly if you're in the corporate world or in the government world, you, have, you don't have the option, you don't have the, it's not your discretionary move at that point to determine that you can and cannot pay attention to things based on a divide, a geographical divide. Uh, and there's not necessarily any indication that you can, um, you don't necessarily have the ability also to ignore and differentiate based on what you see on the wire, what's important and what's not. That we just don't have the bandwidth now to tune off, you know, about the events happening across nations, geographical boundaries. So those, uh, the digital global has, age has changed everything. So it's not just what events are happening in our country within our national boundaries but also what is happening across uh, other, you know, within other nations, that also has a big impact because of, you know, the disappearing or the blurring boundaries of, you know, uh, nations right now in digital global age. 
So yeah, go ahead, please continue. But there, I think too, though, that the third order effect I alluded to, though, is that all the things that had been considered traditional wisdom. This comprises a lot of things that you're exposed to, for instance, in grad in undergrad and graduate education, in issue, you know, in in areas where there is a strategic component. Uh, change the rules have changed, and they've changed quite profoundly. A lot of things that are considered mother's milk is to hey, this is how you support sound decisions. These are things that traditionally stand up to scrutiny as having been derived of sound process. Now are changed as well. And I don't think that the wisdom has necessarily been updated to reflect the effect that the that being on the IT pipe, you know, as um, as an information source has really has really scaled to meet those needs. Um, if they have any particularly overarching concern, that would be it. Um, I deal a lot, and this is simply a matter of as much personal connection uh, interest, but I've dealt with the legal uh, in law enforcement realm since pretty much the beginning of my cybersecurity career and uh, have been really, really fascinated with how evidence that, you know, that has its origins in IT make it to court and how they get integrated in um, basically a legacy driven um, uh, system. And it turns out in fits and starts, it's not a very graceful um, integration. And I think that in perhaps that's in the best of situations. I think that in less well-ordered places where you have less formalism uh, wrapped around government, that it's an even more awkward um, integration. So you have situations where you have certain sort of pillars of society of civilization that rely on uh, certain legacy means of dealing with the information that's presented to you. And an information source now that in, in terms of currency, um, in terms of the arrival time of the factoids, as well as trustability, you don't have any of the standard the classic trappings, intuitive trappings that allow you to determine whether you trust something or not, you know, trust an information source or not. Um, all of the traditional wisdom kind of ends up on much shakier ground than it might have been even a decade ago. So that becomes a really, really critical way of which this deals with things. And it is something that I think is ample fodder uh, for folks who are trying to keep up with this, be it on an academic um, level, on an operational level. I really, uh, the, the joke we have is that being a security officer is at once wonderful if you don't deal well with boredom. Uh, it also is the most stressful job on earth uh, simply because you have no real rule book. You only have folks who can, can instruct you in one or another aspect. Um, of it and that, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's just a frustrating scene. Yes, it is. It is. I, I hear you because the cyberspace uh, has brought us so many challenges because right now there are no rules of, you know, war that is happening in the cyberspace. There are you know, all kinds of 
war going on in uh, on in cyberspace and because of cyberspace and uh, without any proper structure guidelines or you know rules of engagement so security industry has a huge challenge right now because they just don't know what they're dealing with and how they should be addressing that and what boundaries they have or you know what criteria they have or how much they are able to uh, you know address so it is a very complex time for the security industry especially when the whole nature and definition and meaning of security has changed because security you know uh, historically was just about you know managing their uh, territories and by physical force and things like that now security the meaning of security has completely changed so it, it is a challenging time for security industry and uh, uh, the the what is interesting is that you know people need to integrate uh, define and integrate the meaning of security that is fit or that is worthy enough for the cyberspace, geospace and space and that can, you know, unite the boundaries of security in all three, you know, cyberspace, geospace and space because of the integrated nature of the nations, its government, industries, organizations and academia. So it's a very interesting and challenging time. So let's let's go forward uh, with this discussion uh, while natural disasters and the general threats of digital information technology systems and data that includes hardware and software failures, malware, viruses, spam, scams, and phishing, and human error are a cause of concern. It is the criminal threats of information technology systems and data which comes in the security breaches that is not only a cause of concern, but shaking up the global power structure. What are the threats that you see are the most critical for not only the industries but for the survival of nations oh heavens i can't even begin to deal i think that if i were to look at it if i come at it from the point of view of an information security cybersecurity geek one area that is of constant concern is that of what we call ina so identification and authentication uh, in short, identification authentication means answering the questions, first, who are you when you approach me? And secondly, how do I know you are who you say you are? And I think it is an obvious that if you're dealing with things at a, nature st at a nation state level, um, that becomes pretty important. Uh, if you are the, on the receiving end of a weapon, um, coming after you or coming after your territory, uh, it's useful to have a sense, and that's usually the first thing, first item on your agenda from military point of view is figuring out first off who was the source of that uh, of that of that offensive act, and secondly, how do you know it was that person? You know, it was that nation state. Uh, first off, the differentiation between a nation state and an unnation state is pretty critical. But even if you're reasonably certain that it is a nation state that has uh, committed an act against you, um, there are, are usually a number of players that might find it in their strategic best interest to be able to fake. Um, you know, to make it, make something that comes from them appear to have come from another 
uh, nation. So that, you know, logically, if, you know, if I am, if I am nation A and I have two, two other nations with whom I have lukewarm at best relationships and I'm concerned about both of them, to me, an optimal strategic move would be to fire, have one appear to, to wage war on the other with the, the probably, um, probably reasonable assumption that the two of them will keep each other busy and in the meantime effectively have uh, some protective, one might argue some protective and other advantages for my, for my nation state, simply because, you know, I, I divert two of, my, two of my worst enemies and furthermore, uh, maybe in a position where I can do away with both of them without me having to do much of anything. So those sorts of scenarios are an obvious first uh, a first issue, and I suspect one one that that um, takes up a fair amount of bandwidth in in the diplomatic uh, world. Yes, um, there are a lot of things wrapped up in that inability to determine for certain, and particularly in cyber attack world, where where offensive items, where strikes come from and to whom you can actually assign attribution. Because you'll have other situations, you know, and that, there's a, um, that's another complicating factor with cyber attacks in general, cyber war in general, is that you don't necessarily have a binding of the origin of the problem to, you know, a, uh, a, a standardly recognized physically, physical location. Uh, I may have something that comes out of a uh, point on the internet that may be an actually friendly territory or my own territory for that matter, that is very clearly targeting my defense assets and doing so in a really obnoxious way. Uh, it's a problem. I may have issues with being able to, to trustably trace back from that friendly point. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult to make good decisions, and particularly decisions you're inclined to back up with a with a weapon strike, yes. um, given imperfect, uh, you know, or, or for that matter, very very imperfect uh, uh, information. Yes. So it, it sort of changes the game and changes it in a lot of cases in nerve wracking ways, if you're if you're responsible for managing those things. Yes, you are absolutely right. Do you see any possibility that there, there are some technological innovations uh, that are, you know, underway or, you know, in preparation that would help those kind of challenges, especially about the identification and authentication? Because if we have the power, technological power to identify or authenticate who is, you know, behind this, that would make so many things simple and so much easier. Uh, in uh, validating uh, pretty much, you know, whatever is happening in the cyberspace? Well, I think that there, the, the, the other issue on that is that in other areas of, uh, of diplomacy in general, um, it tends to be too often a zero-sum game for every person who gains because, uh, I mean, who loses because of a perceived deficiency. Uh, chances are there are at least a couple of entities who find it in their best interest in, interest for that problem to exist. Uh, 
Um, it's uh, in that particular, there's a great deal of work that has been done in identification authentication. I find it telling that it has taken easily 30 or 40 years for the market for those technologies in the commercial realm, the market for those technologies to actually appear. Um, most of the things we look at from a market point of view, and thanks to my time as a venture capitalist, I look at things through this prism. Um, there, the, the market done and the sales figures for folks who function in the, the identification authentication space are uh, tend to lag behind other areas. We're, we're into shiny toys still in cybersecurity commercial markets. So you'll have fundamental needs like that that go begging when they should have been ubiquitous by now. Right. Um, even as you have other things that are a questionable benefit that get uh, extreme, you get the extreme valuation that move a lot of units. Um, it's, uh, you know, one of the frustrations of wanting to get things done in a particular way and wanting to see people make money <laughs> in getting those things done. Or the right people, that was my wake-up call. You want the right people to be making money and selling the right items. Right, right. So it's not glamorous enough for, you know, some people I see that. So. <laughs> as the, oh, yes. Glamorous. <laughs> right. So as the information and communication technologies continue to increase in strategic importance, and risk to nations, its government industries, organizations, and academia, and also individuals. The rapid development and deployment of these digital technologies creates both independent and interdependent risk for each component of NGIOAI, that means nations, its government industries, organizations, academia, and individuals. So while the nature of risk varies by the environment of the initiative, entity, or a nation, both internal and external, what are the challenges you see facing critical infrastructures across industries that is becoming a cause of concern to not only its current state, but also the survivability of nations and the global community? Oh, heavens. There are some, there I think that one of the issues that is this on so many different levels um, one of the issues is that you see use of, of information technology pieces and critical infrastructure components um, that sort of violate the original expectations of the designer of those components with regard to security. I think, for instance, you see chips that were used to control power plants or factory floor automation or other things. You see similarly in, um, operating system software or application software that end up brought into those environments and put in place inside those systems that frankly are not of a quality that they need to be security-wise. So a lot of the task in terms of critical infrastructure protection, that's been, that a lot of the work that's gone uh, heretofore has been ident identifying those or doing a better job of identifying those situations and uh, addressing them. 
Um, the whole uh, Volkswagen debacle, for instance, this week has been a real interesting worked example of that. It's obvious that there are perhaps some lapses in terms of quality control of the software itself. Um, it's going to that that is one situation I'm following with great interest, simply because the scenario is so fundamental yes. to a lot of the infrastructure that we rely on uh, ubiquitously worldwide. Uh, down to the lowliest end user, but also up to the biggest military force. The vehicles, you know, the, the software in question, I would be surprised, wouldn't, I would be really surprised if I didn't see it in, for instance, a lot of military situations, a lot of military vehicles. Uh, it's hard to contain those sorts of things, but in effect, you, we're, we're suffering from a situation where um, it's almost like we're in the automotive industry again, uh, from by analogy, but in the automotive industry, it took us a long time to get our act together regarding safety standards yes. for vehicles from a variety of perspectives. But also it took us a long time to wrap protections that we took for granted, like insurance mechanisms and other risk management mechanisms around it. Uh, we still have a ways to go in security. We've been dancing our way around the notion of how in commercial installations and that how you basically assign insurance um, to issues and insurance against cyber specific risks uh, to these structures. And frankly, I think it's going to be a while before we even remotely approach the actuarial modeling yes. that would be appropriate for these situations. Um, it's one that's been a lively, you know, it's been a topic of uh, discussion for at least 20 years and I'm aware of and I suspect predates that by quite a bit. Um, when it comes to the, when it comes to the rest of the critical infrastructure, uh, we have a lot of scary situations. Yes. You know, I, deal, I deal with and have advised quite a few of the folks, um, industry associations and over and so forth who govern um, the industries that are charged with running a lot of this critical infrastructure. And pretty much to an industry, they're all pretty worried. A lot of them, they're still stuck on the notion of if we only achieve um, compliance, regulatory compliance in these areas, then our job is done. And I end up being the person around the table saying, but you're not, those don't take into consideration this particular hazard or that particular hazard or this particular vulnerability. What are you going to do if someone exercises this vulnerability to this particular effect? And um, the joke we have is that typically we walk away from these meetings and there are a whole lot of managers who came in, you know, happy because they were in compliance, who walk away a little bit, uh, a little shakier, <laughs> a little bit more ashen-faced than when they when they walked in. But it's a it's a very real issue, and frankly, I think that it becomes a measure of the clue of the person running the installation as to how much how much they they're worried about those exposures. Yes, yes, you're right. And I, I think the uh, you talked about the real challenge that we face is that, you know, the resources and the attention is only on what uh, industries are forced to do, that is compliance and legal risk and uh, operational risk and things like that. You know, where the biggest impact is the strategic risk and uh, the industries are not focused on that because that is not something that they are forced to do. 
they can get away with you know not thinking about it because you know of the culture that we have that everyone sees things you know is short term and uh, there is they don't know if they are going to be there in 2 years or 3 years to be evaluated for the performance or you know decisions that they are taking right now so that is a real challenge and for uh, that i mean uh, that the whole notion is that you know let's just focus on compliance risk and we are done with it you know when we uh, take care of our legal responsibilities and uh, let's not you know worry about any other critical risk that is a real challenge and uh, we need to create i hope there is a bigger and better awareness about uh, the critical you know necessity of uh, addressing strategic risk and addressing uh, the integrated and interdependent challenges that comes with the infrastructure because it's not just the independent risk that we have to address to manage the you know critical infrastructure risk because it is not confined within you know the any particular entities or industries you know boundaries to manage those risks because they are all connected to so many other you know suppliers and vendors and they have a lot of interdependent risk and we don't have a framework right now by which we can manage the interdependent risk while there is a great effort to manage enterprise risk there is no proper framework or uh, you know processes established to manage the interdependent integrated risk and uh, people are even i'm sure that in some industries and some businesses are able to identify you know these interdependent risk but after identifying what what is the next step how do they manage that who is responsible who is accountable none of those things are defined and there is no proper structure established so the integrated risk management framework that is not there is a critical challenge right now for everyone well i think one thing that so one thing that ended up being begged i've been i think we've been the benefit we've been the beneficiaries of um some unusually good thinking on the part of the US government and that um i think that the folks at nist um you know which handles basically national level standards for technology um realized early on that if they did it right that the standards world could give us at least a template uh via which we could cure those things we knew about at least put out there the solutions and that in that situation actually give teeth you know and and value to the regulatory compliance uh piece of things they understood that folks were going to do that simply because the markets require it of them if they're publicly traded and they thought well maybe this in the government world and this in the private world might actually give us an ability to um nail down what is you know what's considered stable ground gives us a foundation that we can build on the individual firms can build on and for that matter you know government organizations can build on we can basically go through determine whether the standards make sense whether they actually remedy real problems and do so in a maximal fashion and with a wave of a hand we can nail those down and have something that then we can pass off to an entire generation and entire industries or regulatory compliance folks and have some faith that they'll be executed and that you'll see benefit from them 
Um, they don't have a lot of funding. They never have enough as far as I'm concerned. They've done an extraordinary job of recruiting folks who are unusually clueful in the area. And those folks who are in place, I think, have done a masterful job. They very rarely get credit for having done so. So that's one piece of it. I'm happy to say that it appears to work. It doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of work to do. No, I agree. But I mean, it is a good start. I think it's useful to, say, to talk about that as a critical piece of the protection infrastructure. Yes. No, it is a good start, Becky. The NIST framework that uh, was released a few months before, it is a good start, but there are very critical you know, gaps and challenges in that framework because it, it encourages public and private enterprises to work together, but just by saying that, hey, you and you work together, it doesn't happen. There needs to be uh, some sort of incentive, some sort of structure, so that you know it allows them to you know have that kind of collaboration and partnership. I mean, uh, we know that you know human nature is such that you know some people require uh, just uh, very simple you know basic. Uh, fact that, okay, I need to do something better. I need to identify the risks that are within my control and manage it. But some people require, uh, you know, some incentives, some financial incentives, some other kind of incentives to be able to identify and, you know, take it forward to the right, you know, appropriate decision makers that, hey, this is the risk. So it, it without having that defined structure, just by saying public, private, you know, you need to work together, it's not going to happen. And the second challenge and gap that I found, you know, in the NIST framework is that it talks only about information security. I didn't see anywhere the role of strategic, you know, risk. And to me, cybersecurity, when you are telling that this is a cybersecurity risk management framework, there needs to be some sort of, you know, framework for, you know, strategic risk and cybersecurity. And there needs to be a proper definition that cybersecurity is not information security. You are saying that this is a cybersecurity framework. Then at least define what cybersecurity is, because to me, it was purely about information security. And again, it is a great start. It's a great initiative and uh, they are, you know, very open that they're going to, as they get more information, they're going to, you know, work on it and make it uh, better adaptable and, uh, you know, for the uh, benefit of the industries and uh, governments and nations. But I think at this point, even if I feel that even if the, all the organizations uh, implement that framework, I think that it's not going to be likely effective. And it will not serve its purpose in managing the cybersecurity risk. That is, at this point, I feel that you know those, there are very critical gaps and challenges with that framework. Well, I think too, though, that there is a tendency. Um, first of it, first I am told I have I have a, um, um, a a dear and old friend. I wrote a legal book with him, who has been in, who is an attorney and for that matter, an attorney general, so a prosecutor specialized in electronic crimes for much of his career. And he becomes sort of my wake-up call and reality check as to when this, when the stuff hits the road from a legal perspective. And one thing he's fond of reminding me of is that when it comes to technology, the only thing that's had anything remotely near the pervasive uh, effect of, of information security, I mean, information technology on the society is probably automotive technology. And he says, you know, it took well over a hundred years yes. 
to even start getting that right. And he says that as it is, that it accounts for some un, 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 an incredible measure, incredible percentage of state and local uh, statutes have nothing deal with nothing but um, automotive, you know, the 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 maintenance and operation of an automotive on public roads. So it's a it it, it has taken a hundred years. It, it maintains, you know, it has it has basically made state and local legal codes at considerable expense. A lot of law enforcement effect goes to uh, dealing with only that aspect of technology. And he says, I think he says that remote, given the given the adaptability of IT, it would be naive to expect it to take much less time. Yes. To get it right, and he says, "I think you guys are because you're so accustomed to the IT giving you a, you know, a, a, a measure, a workable result in, in microseconds that you guys are um, perhaps a, a wee bit, <laughs> a wee bit unrealistic in expectation. There, you might need to adjust those." I, I hear you that you know it requires time. All these, you know, developing such you know complex frameworks. It does require time and it does require more resources and effort. So we just have to, you know, wait and see how these collaborations shape up that could make this, you know, NIST framework more effective or, you know, we have to see what other frameworks are uh, coming along because I'm, uh, I also know, I mean, we also know that uh, a lot of uh, entities in private industry are also putting together, you know, effective framework. But uh, that, that's another challenge that, you know, it's not that there is a lack of framework. There are frameworks coming from across nations, across, you know, governments, across, you know, industries or private entities and businesses. There are lots and lots of different kind of framework and different kind of standards, but there are so many of them. So, I mean, if you are a private entity, how, what framework do you have to go forward with? What entity, what kind of, you know, standards you have to go forward with? Because it depends on which country you are, which nation you are in, and you know, what industry you are in. There are so many different framework and, you know, different ways of doing things. So how do you know which one is more effective and which one you have to go forward with? So again, that global standards will come into picture, global framework, which are the global institutions who is going to be responsible for developing these frameworks? Who is going to be responsible for developing the standards of the you know cybersecurity or cyberspace? So those you know big you know questions are out there. You know there it is not that there is any shortage of talent or intellectual capability or you know uh, potential. We have plenty of that across nations. But where is the unifying you know institution unifying framework? that everyone can feel comfortable with that, okay, we have that framework, let's adopt that, you know, and let's uh, uh, implement that and, you know, let's work on it uh, wholeheartedly so that we can manage this complex risk that we are facing right now and we will be facing in the coming years, but we don't have those global standards. So right now there are a lot of questions and uh, I, there are a lot of uh, entities, I'm sure you are also hearing in uh, across private industries and uh, all different industries and uh, across nations that they don't know which you know framework they should be implement and where they should go from here well i think there that there's a tendency to to want to approach things 
as you know, as Madison Avenue would, for instance, um, you know, from a from the way the world as it is, the the outpicturing of the world as uh, you know, advertising would have you believe it is, versus all of the really gross and grimy uh, aspects of the real world. Um, part of the divide, I think we put this before. Everyone has uh, their own take their own take of where the differentiation is between information security and all of its all of its horrible glory and cybersecurity, which I'm sure isn't not that much uh, that much neater. And to me the issue is that in cybersecurity we finally understand that you cannot look at information security absent context. You have to be able to understand and have a way of being able to marry the you know, the issues of information security and fit it to a specific context. And I think a lot of what you're talking about in terms of framework is that there's a tendency to want to use a, a, a framework development. You know, if you're on one of the committees, there's a temptation to say this is how I can basically encapsulate my attitude and worldview in ways so that everybody can utilize it to protect their own you know, protect their system or deal with systems at their point of view. And I think that you've got to be humble enough to say the nature of frameworks basically want you to underreach of anything, nail down those things that you know are absolute, and also make extremely clear this is where you as individual practitioner, because you want somebody to work with a practitioner on this one, this is where you pick up and we let off. You know, the framework will give you this much of the skeleton. This is how you begin to assess what it, you need to add on to it to make it meaningful for your context. And these, this is what might be the start of a set of components you use to build that out. These are ones that have withstood the test with these constraints. These are the ones that have withstood, you know, the, um, the test of application in other similar contexts. You know, we have the, this ongoing, or, you know, we've had this ongoing, not quite argument, discussion, a lunch table discussion, which ironically is what sucked me into computer security in the beginning to begin with. It was the best lunch bunch on earth. But a lot of what we talked about is that what does it mean to be, and what will it mean to be a computer security, information security um, practitioner going forward? And one thing that kept going up for me, I always assumed when I was a child that I would grow up to be a physician and end up disqualified because of some handicaps from going to medical school. And it turns out perhaps I get to be more of a physician now as an information security practitioner than my own doctor gets to be thanks to manage healthcare. <laughs> yes, yes. I but uh, there's, there are a lot of similarities uh, in terms of the messiness, the theoretical messiness, yet uh, reliance on strong theory of, of the practice of medicine and the practice of information security.
you're dealing with, um, you know, if you can, you can have more interesting conversations. If you're interested in doing the metrics, one can argue that it isn't even general medicine. It's a matter of, um, it, it's more a matter of like public health. If you practice public health and epidemiology and uh, perhaps, perhaps a specialty, you know, in, in obscure uh, epidemics or something like that. I, I assert that if you deal with stakeholders, uh, be they system owners, be they people who, who depend on those systems, and this includes nations and states, uh, and decision makers, you know, and leaders of governments in that realm, you're in a position where you still serve a lot of what one would expect of their own physician. You know, you want somebody who can basically come in, hold your hand and say, okay, the world is not just ended <laughs> because of this or that particular attack or threat. Um, let's sit down and talk about what needs to be done and which of it we're equipped to do right now and which of it need to be on your to-do list going forward, which of these need to be a priority and talk about the different measures that we can take to deal with what we've got before us. Sure. Sure. No, I, I hear you. I mean, there are, uh, yes, uh, we have a good starting point. We have to build on that. And we have to also keep in mind the uh, changing nature of the enterprises that we have, that, you know, any business entity or any enterprise is not just located within our nation's geographical boundaries. They are all across nations. So the, there are fundamental changes in how we define enterprise, how we define security, and how we define integrated risk management, you know, uh, approach, and uh, how we have to do things. So there are there is a, there, there are a lot of question marks because there are there are rapid changes happening uh, in the way we do things, in the way you know uh, things are shaping up across nations. So it is going to take time to define uh, and uh, identify and define all those different. Uh, parameters that needs to be in place to make it effective and we all have to work, collaborate and work together to make it happen and uh, because security is no longer a government affair it's an NGIOA affair that's what I say that it there was a time where you know government was able to provide security to everyone now is not possible because of the changing global fundamentals and uh, everyone has to get involved it's that means nations it's government industries organizations and academia we all have a role to play in you know getting security and achieving security so having said that let's move forward as the use of social media technologies is expanding into new areas and new ways of doing things for example surging communities collaboration and commerce the regulatory requirements are trying to catch up across industries what regulatory challenges do you see social media technologies bringing for not only security to the industries, but also for nations? I think there that, that, they, um, that effectively um, uh, storms um, are, uh, you know, are a fact of life that you'll end up with, uh, you're going to end up with situations where things that are totally off the wall end up being uh, pervasive through, through your entire populace. Um, I think that there is a tendency if you're not a gov if you're not if you haven't spent spent a career in political science or in the, in government itself, there's a tendency for you to over to overestimate and overassume the number of citizens that actually will take an active role 
and be vocal to you. I think that social social media gives you the opportunity to be visible to a portion of your populace that you probably were not visible to before. This is presuming a, 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 a democratic state. In an undemocratic state, it gives you an extremely powerful uh, way of dealing with, with um, you know, putting forth your own propaganda. I mean, it basic, basically puts propaganda in the hands of the, you know, the most, most humble of citizens. Exactly. <laughs> and that's good news and bad news, depending on where, where, what you think is in the best interest of your nation state. Yes. So it's a, it's a very powerful, it be, again becomes a powerful capability and it becomes one that's relatively unfettered in terms of access. Yes. And I think that it just requires a different set of operating rules and, uh, and methods to deal with it. And I don't see that, that folks who are frankly bright and experienced enough to know better, I don't see evidence that they really understand how to maneuver in this realm. Um, you know, witness the, the politician from New York who determined they should, that it was in his best interest to uh, put uh, interesting pictures of himself out. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was a, a, a wee bit, uh, that was a wee bit extreme and ill thought. But I think that folks at the novelty of the experience of being on social media still hasn't worn off and that it will end up basically being yet another outpicturing of your of your persona that you got to manage i think folks are reasonably okay with that if they're you know at some level of government they understand that but i still see evidence that there are other folks out there who are in that realm who don't get it <laughs> who just don't understand that it requires management let alone have a sense of how to manage their own image Yes, yes, you're right. So uh, let uh, coming to you know another point uh, about mobile devices now coming from social media to mobile devices, rapid expansion of the number of mobile devices and commerce and the application functionality and processes introduces new opportunities as well as risk. What kind of security controls needs to be in place for lost and stolen devices to prevent security risks? Because now we know that you know. People use their personal devices, you know, phones, uh, iPads, uh, and those kind of, you know, all kinds of uh, gadgets at work, and they have their uh, work information on that. So, what kind of security controls and private entities or governments need to put in place so that uh, the security controls, so that they can effectively manage their security risk? Well, as I indicated before, I think that the one the 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 orphan child of security up until now has been a strong authentication, uh, strong identification and authentication. And the thing about that that makes the neglect of it so pressing to me is that um, it needs to occur. It needs to be a nested model. It needs to not only identify you to any of your devices you personally, but also needs to identify your devices. And in, some would argue that it needs to identify the software on those devices to the device and for subsequently to you. That needs to be bound together so that when an application speaks for you, it in fact speaks for you with your permission and your authority. And uh, part, of, part of what can be that um, 
can be the device itself. There is another reasonably active design mechanism in security, um, a way of conceptualizing where you put trust that advocates not trusting the device itself, considering the device simply a receptacle and not putting trust in that device inherently so that if you lose the device, um, it becomes, you know, it's of no value. It doesn't give access in and of itself to something that matters to you elsewhere in the web. Uh, Cloud-based technologies tend to serve um, these, you know, tend to have protections built into them that serve these goals well and minimize the effect of having lost or um, uh, lost or have stolen, uh, you know, an, an access device. But the other, the other rule, if, if I've learned anything over the years I've been in security, is that there's always a weak link in these suckers. And the chances anymore of that weak link staying private are really remote. <laughs> so to an extent, too, it becomes a matter of we, we, we have a duty in terms of talking to users and saying, you know, it's really, really critical for you to protect this in the same way that you would your wallet. There's no differentiation as you wouldn't walk around, you know, and stroll around and be very casual on how you manage your wallet. I uh, probably don't want to do, you probably don't want to manage your cell phone sloppily either. These protections are appropriate. Yes. And that becomes part of just the fabric or social fabric. Yes. Yes, I mean, we hear some. Regardless of the role they play. Right, right. No, I mean, we hear a lot of, you know, major corporations they have come out with guidelines that you know you should not even leave your laptop out of your sight for mm -hmm. a minute also you just keep it with you all the time so yes uh, those kind of effective guidelines would you know probably bring the culture change and that we need to manage uh, this uh, security challenges that we have now there is an, another interesting development that i have been seeing is that there are many who says that reduced enterprise rt resources support and budgets has led to multiple shadow IT organizations within enterprises and that shadow groups tend to not follow established security control procedures and are becoming a cause of concern. What are your thoughts on shadow organizations and the complex security risk it brings to entities across industries by failure to comply with corporate IT policies and controls? There, uh, you are out of my milieu on that. <laughs> Not, I, I so I have no commentary on that. Okay, okay, okay. So, um, probably this is the last question: Is that digital technology innovation uh, today outpaces security that impacts not only cyberspace but also geospace, and in the coming years, probably space. Rapid demand for the latest and greatest software package by not only consumers, but also businesses often drives developers to take shortcuts, use outdated code, or not fully test new products in order to get the product to the market or end user quickly and rapidly. This can result in softwares that are not sufficiently vetted against security vulnerabilities or system compatibility. What are your thoughts on this innovation race in the cyberspace that compromises security in CGS? That means cyberspace, geospace. It becomes, this becomes tantamount to requiring, um, requiring safety testing of automobiles, in my, in my opinion. We're in a position where we have a lot of really bad code out there. 
And part of this, I mean, the, the origins of it are not necessarily, not necessarily malicious in, in, you know, in, in intent. Part of this simply is an issue, it's a function of the speed with which IT took hold and the fact that um, academia was extremely slow to catch up with it. So you have a lot of folks who have written really critical code who have no formal education in software. Even when they have formal educations in software, those, soft, those educations are extremely of extremely uneven quality. You don't see a lot of consistency across exposures for folks who ostensibly have formal educations in IT. Um, the folks, I was fortunate in that I was mentored by some of the pioneers of computer security in the old, you know, from the old days, the folks who did the Orange Book and Rainbow series for U.S. DOD, for instance, one of the first uh, projects, and whose involvement dated from the WARE Commission that a lot of folks consider to be the official start of computer security. And they said this was a no-brainer. You know, they said we were looking at this for about six months and said, oh, screw this. We've got to understand how to build good code. We get to understand how to really nail down systems. Ironically, they did a good start. A group called, a group pulled together in the um, 70s, 60s and 70s called, called, it did an operating system called Multics which was broadly accepted and had some fabulous features that I have yet, you know, I don't see replicated much these days, but they were, one of the things that made them unique is that they really nailed down a lot of security stuff. Um, so we know how to build pieces of this security. Um, that's one thing I've been working on at South Alabama. One of the things I came here to help do was to build out an undergraduate, through graduate, through PhD program. And our program is not cybersecurity, it's in cyber assurance, where cyber assurance is basically uh, defined as the study of how to build more secure systems. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself, I'll tell you, I sat in on all of the curriculum committees and so forth that we submitted. And it was a really tight fit to get in all of the courses we thought needed covering in order to make the degree program up. And the degree technically is by definition a double major. It could become a triple major with the addition of one additional course. Um, because of the, 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 it is a rigorous, you know, it's a rigorous program. However, I think that the skill set of being able to understand how you nail down code to begin with, how you design systems from the outset so that they are by design and by structure more secure than the standard offering is, uh, is something that will be a value of enduring value going forward. And I just don't think that corporate America is quite caught up to that. Um, although, again, I think that the, the Volkswagen scenario, as well as others, end up as ongoing reminders that um, software, you know, software building is a process that needs to be as tightly managed as other areas of, um, you know, other areas of fabrication other areas involved in manufacturing the product the market. So um, that ends up being, I think, a bit of a wake-up call.
and I think any penalties that um, Volkswagen suffers, be they governmental or be they marketplace, I think they're going to be a significant market pushback to them, may end up motivating folks to try to do it better next go round. Yes. yes, it's important. It's important for us to do it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And I, uh, I think uh, before we conclude our uh, today's discussion, I, I would like to ask you this personal question: What, what attracted you to towards this field of you know cybersecurity? And you have had such an impressive uh, experience so far. You have worked with NSA. You have been a venture capitalist, and uh, you are advising uh, uh, industries. Uh, on how to you know on the cyber security and especially the strategic nature of the you know security challenges that they are they are facing right now so how did you your journey started on this and where do you see it going forward oh heavens as i indicated before when i went to when i went to work at nsa I actually did not originally work in in the computer security center, which was a big, you know, which was a big deal. It's a sighting from the National Computer Security Center, which at the time was working on the Rainbow series, doing first set of standards for secure systems. Um, I had a group of friends who worked for the center, and we lunched together. And they were the best of buddies, and they always had a lot of interesting things to do. I was building systems elsewhere. And uh, the joke we had was that ultimately they'd end up grabbing me. So they went through several evolutions as the center. I went on and built systems and so forth. And I was in a situation where I needed not to be doing as much travel as I'd been doing. And a friend had an opening and says, well, if you'll come in and straighten out this unholy mess for me, for me you got a job. So I ended up transitioning into the center in the late 80s. And it was fun in that I already knew a lot of the folks there. The things I was assigned to do, I had differences of opinions with my management. It gave me the opportunity to take certain things to market, which I really liked doing. And um, I ended up in the most special of communities. And as I determined that I needed to not be um, you know, in, at NSA anymore, um, I got a lot of links into what came next. I took a stint as a security operational security officer at Los Alamos. And then from there ended up with calls from other folks in the community who said, well, we have this that we think you ought to do next, even as you figure out what you're really going to do next. And that took me to the Valley and subsequently back here. So it's just been, it's been a matter of, I still work with a lot of the same people I worked with 30 years ago. Uh, where none of us belong to the same organizations. But also, we're all still very much carrying on, you know, uh, the the ongoing conversation as to what comes next, what do, it does is. Most of us have, um, have had an effect on how this area has gone, which has been fun. But uh, the joke is, is that none of us, a common attribute of us across the board is that none of us deal well with boredom <laughs> and uh, security that's never been an issue. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Always something else coming on. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. You know, I, uh, I am really honored that you uh, agreed to come on Risk Roundup and uh, we thank you for that. We thank you. We appreciate all your thoughts and uh, all the information that you provided for the benefit of the global community. 
and especially for the security industry because uh, your thoughts uh, are very uh, important and in the right direction and it's uh, going to benefit uh, and help the uh, global security industry tremendously and uh, uh, we hope that you know in future you come again and share uh, some more thoughts about uh, what you feel where the IT industry is going and what kind of changes we'll be seeing in the coming years so that's it for today friends uh, although we can talk about this uh, uh, topic for you know for a long long time probably we can talk for hours on this you know without stopping i think uh, we need to stop at this point because you know after one hour probably everybody would say okay we probably need to have several different breaks to listen to you know uh, such a wonderful discussion that uh, i mean it's uh, it's it can become a one day seminar you know let me just put it that way so this is such a very informative topic but uh, we will uh, we have come to the end of our allotted time so uh, for more information on risk roundup and the upcoming sessions please go to riskgroupllc.com uh, thank you everyone and please join us again thank you so much becky it was really nice talking to you and we wish you and the center the very best and we look forward to seeing uh, more initiatives uh, that come out like you were just mentioning about cyber sec uh, security insurance and uh, other areas that uh, the center is working on and we look forward uh, to uh, having the uh, having that for the benefit of not only the academic uh, uh, community and universities and students but also for the industries uh, and uh, to manage their security risk and to understand actually what those uh, security challenges are so thank you so much and uh, good luck for that thank you thank you it's been my pleasure